Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koistra in the History Department, and I'm joined by Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. This is our last podcast of the 2020-2021 school year, and we thought it was appropriate then to ask Dr. Dan Ritchie from the English Department to be our final guest. We're going to ask him a little bit about how he got into teaching in the English department and also what are some of his highlights from the humanities program. So we hope you enjoy. Dr. Dan Ritchie, it is a pleasure to welcome you back on the Bookish at Bethel podcast. Um, We crossed paths recently in the hallway and I was... um, Fresh from the library, I had a copy of James Joyce's Ulysses under my arm, and you noticed it. And I think I said something like, it's futile for me to even attempt to read this because I know I'm going to get lost. And you said, I have a guide. And actually, this is the book that made me decide that uh, I want to be an English professor. And it occurs to me, I don't really know the full story behind what led you to become an English professor. So I was, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that tantalizing bit of information you shared with me in the hallway. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Um, I'm glad to be back. And I think many of us have stories of, of key books of literature or philosophy that led us to our vocations. I know Carrie has a love for Camus and um, mine started with uh, James Joyce uh, at age 18. I took a year between high school and college. I decided not to go to college immediately after high school. And I took a course at the University of Louisville, where I am from, uh, from one of the first generations of, of Joyce scholars. His name was, was Richard Kane, K-A-I-N. And uh, he wasn't really a very good classroom teacher, but he loved Joyce and he loved his students. And those of us in teaching knows that that's really a key, maybe the key to good teaching. So... Um, I began reading Ulysses, and I happened to have a girlfriend at the time in Louisville who also liked literature. That always helps uh, when you do those kinds of things together. Um, But Ulysses is a very difficult book. It's the story of one day in the life of two people, and particular Leopold Bloom and Stephen Dedalus. And so um, I did hear about a guide to the book by Harry Blamires, who was a student of C.S. Lewis's, incidentally, and has written a very good book on kind of Christian uh, literary criticism. So I gave that book uh, to you, Anne-Marie, because it goes through hour by hour uh, in Leopold Bloom's and Stephen Dedalus's day in Dublin. Now, what drew me to the book was uh, the, the literary artistry of it and the undeniable beauty of it. Um, There's one chapter in the book, um, I think it's the Ithaca chapter, that's in the form of a catechism. Um, Joyce uh, goes through all different modes of writing. Incidentally, that's a characteristic of epic. And an epic, uh, this is true of Milton as well, an epic is really a catalog of different modes of writing. And so for for one of those modes, uh, Joyce chooses to write a catechism. And he talks about, uh, he asks what, I think this is uh, Leopold Bloom, what he saw when he looked up into the heavens. And the answer is, the heaven tree of stars hung with humid night blue fruit. Mm. 
What do you see when you look up into the heavens on a, on a, uh, in a night sky? The heaven tree of stars hung with humid night blue fruit. And that was, that was just one exemplary phrase that, that drew me to, to this book. Mm. So it, it, first of all, it was the experience of beauty. Mm. The experience of beauty. You may know that great phrase of, of Dostoevsky, beauty will save the world. Well, beauty has many different forms, and that was its first form for me. And then just to, to leap ahead to one of the books that we have taught in Humanities and the Brothers Karamazov and uh, Dostoevsky, beauty, beauty includes even things like the crucified Christ. And so being able, being able to combine the aesthetic beauty of Joyce and the theological depth and beauty of someone like Dostoevsky is what drew me to literature. Hmm. I can take you through college, but I'll stop for just a minute if you want. <laughs> and have you had the opportunity at Bethel to actually teach James Joyce's Ulysses? Um, only in on England term. And frankly, it didn't go very well. <laughs> it is a very difficult book. And it might be more of a young person's book, uh, to be honest. When I've reread it, it is a little bit self-indulgent, I think uh, a Joyce, Joyce is. So um, when we've taken students to Dublin, which we've done five times, uh, I think the most successful book is, is Dubliners. It's okay. so rooted in... Uh, Dublin history and streets, and they're also short stories, so that makes them easier. However, uh, this last time in 2017, uh, we did a walk uh, that paralleled the chapter that's based on the uh, Lestragonians. Those are the uh, cannibalistic uh, tribe in that, uh, that Odysseus meets or Ulysses meets in his wanderings. And it's about eating. It's a, an eating you know, when you think about it, eating is pretty darn gross. And yes. so uh, Joyce takes us through, uh, um, through lunchtime, as I, as I recall, uh, in, in Dublin. And uh, you can walk down the street and follow where, where he walked and the things that were eaten. And Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs of, of, of beasts and fowls or something. That's the opening line of uh, one of the chapters. So yes, I've tried without too much success. A portrait of the artist goes better as well. Mm -hmm. Is it just the size while studying abroad, trying to read a book of that magnitude is a bit much for the students? Yes, uh, that's, that's a big thing. Uh, also, it is such it is so different from uh, from almost anything that most of us have read. It takes a huge investment, and uh, um, it, I, I think it's difficult to do that in the semester. I read it. I wasn't in school, as I said, so I didn't have anything else to do um, except work. And uh, and and anyway, it right. works that way. No, I, I agree. And, you know, we talked about this last week, but I started reading Ulysses because I went on that walking tour okay. of Dublin and got inspired. And then we hit the pandemic. And so I suddenly had a lot of extra time on my hands. But when I finished it, I felt like I had finished a marathon. It's, it's definitely, it's an academic undertaking. Carrie, I'd be interested to ask um, your experience of the walk. What did, what did you see in the book that you couldn't have seen without the walk? 
Um, so I suppose I could have wandered into, so the chapter you're talking about the Lestradonians going into that restaurant and, you know, ordering or seeing that they still have the Gorgonzola sandwich on the menu, if you so desire, or getting the burgundy. Um, we saw several bits of the library, um, the place where he, the, the beach where he sees the woman, um, and then it was interwoven with bits from James Joyce's life. Um, and so our tour guide took us to places that overlapped. Well, and then um, last week, Dan, we had um, Sam on to talk about Ulysses in particular. And Sam talked about, I think, going on a similar tour. Is that right, Carrie? And um, yeah. he can't read Ulysses without now seeing these various spots that he toured when he was on his tour in uh, mm -hmm. Dublin. So I'm just saying, Dan, um, we talked last week about how maybe the three of us will just go to Dublin, but I think you're invited now. Is that true, Carrie? Yes. I mean, that clearly needs to happen because you're excited about Ulysses in the same way I'm excited about the stranger. And I feel like that's, that makes us kindred, kindred spirits. I, I will add one of the glories of uh, these study abroad trips and the way we do England term in particular is we emphasize the importance of place to the author's imagination, whether that's the, um, the, the Lake District is the obvious for the romantic poets uh, and uh, down around Tintern Abbey, of course, or, or London itself for uh, Virginia Woolf and, and many other writers. Um, and I know Sam and Chris have taken students, and we have two to World War I sites. Um, so there's so much great and terrible World War I poetry. Um, this is something that really, it makes our education come alive. And I, I think you all in the history department do a particularly good job of this in various, various courses. Yeah, I'm going to ask an aside, which is you mentioned that you were reading James Joyce with a girlfriend at the time. Did the girlfriend uh, come away with uh, a deep appreciation for James Joyce or did that lead to a breakup or how did that work out for you, Dan? Um, she appreciated it uh, quite a bit. Okay. <laughs> no, that was a good thing. So I ended up marrying an English major. Uh, my wife, Judy, uh, and I love talking about poetry and books and we make allusions to different books and uh, little phrases have become part of our um, our dialogue. So, um, marrying a like-minded soul, it's, uh, it's great advice. And it's very fun. <laughs> Thanks for indulging me on that one. Um, Dan, the other question I for sure wanted to get to in this conversation is as maybe some of our listeners know, um, at some point you will be retiring and unfortunately it's going to be too soon. And so as you think about um, humanities, the humanities program, and if you had complete control over the humanities program, what are one or two books that you would add? I, I'm going to dodge the question a little okay. bit. Some, some books may come up, but um, for programs like this for to, su to succeed, it is important that one person not have complete control. Uh, there was a problem in, in one of the great books programs that we looked at uh, where the, the leadership really refused to change anything, and it, uh, it was a problem. So the, the whole purpose of 
uh, of this program is about connections, and we look for connections that are theological, historical, philosophical, political, and literary. So it is difficult to find books that meet all of those. Mm -hmm. And there are some books, I would say, like Paradise Lost, that are that are really too difficult to do justice to, uh, even though they have those connections. Or there are great plays, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, As You Like It, that I think probably wouldn't work because they don't make those connections. Mm -hmm. However, if you get a good uh, team member on the humanities team who is able to show why this, this other book really should be included, to me, that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Because it's a team-taught course, and the team has to be enthusiastic about, about what we do. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to dodge that question for right now. And if I think of something, uh, I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, I will say I um, was an English major as well as a history major in college. And for whatever reason, though, I think because I did two semesters off campus, my um, English major was a little spotty. And so I never read John Milton. And I always felt like that was a major hole in my English degree at Kelvin College. So um, again, maybe if you want a retirement project, you can take me on as a um, tutorial kind of, you know, sort of a thing and, and read through um, Milton with me. Oh, Carrie wants to be part of that. I would well. find that, yes, because I have never read Milton. And I feel like that's a hole in my literary knowledge too. So actually, you'll be very busy during retirement because you'll continue to teach just in a private, unpaid setting. Well, let me just say a word about Paradise Lost. It's just about the fall. That's, that's all it's about is the fall. But it's about the problem of evil. And many of the best books that we do in the humanities program deal with the problem of evil, whether it's The Stranger, uh, The Plague, uh, um, <laughs> the Greek tragedy that we do really Augustine, Dante, uh, Bonhoeffer, um, they're about the, the issue of evil. So it's about the big, the big question. How do, you, how do you get an evil world from a good God? It's the question of theodicy as well. How do you explain, how does God explain himself? Put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And that really leads all the way to, as you say, the, you know, the end of humanities four with both Camus' response to that, right, this sort of existentialist response to that versus Moltmann's response to that. Right. Um, to that, and that in, our, in our cohort, we, we don't do either of those books, but we do 1984 and Flannery O'Connor. Mm -hmm. And uh, 1984 could not be more relevant than it is today. And, and O'Connor's uh, treatment of grace and the realization of our own flawed um, reality. Uh, again, you have people who are passionate about uh, Moltmann and Camus, and that works for, for your cohort, and, uh, and we do different things. But in answer to your question, uh, Anne-Marie, uh, that's, that's really the answer right, now, right there. What, what connects? Mm -hmm. What connects? And what are the members of our team passionate about and able to engage the passions of our students about? Mm -hmm. Dan, as you think back about the um, texts that you've read over the humanities courses with students, what for you are the highlights in terms of texts? Well, I, I, 
immediately go to texts that that students have really responded to because I I like them all frankly I I I have them on my uh, my iPod and I listen to them while I go running and students are always (laughs) amazed you're listening to Tocqueville while you're running yes I'm listening to Tocqueville when I'm running Um, so for the to see them um, realize the significance of uh, of mores in Tocqueville uh, to see how uh, individualism really arises from our passion for equality in Tocqueville and the difficulty that that presents. Um, th- those, that's a, a real highlight. To me, a, a book works when it produces some resistance in the students. They, they realize that this book is really different from what they expected. Uh, They might be expecting uh, an older book, uh, say Tocqueville, to ratify the the beliefs they have in the present, you know, toward individualism and toward equality. Uh, Those are things that many of us take for granted. But then they see that the the bad effects of individualism actually arise from equality. That produces resistance uh, and they have to deal with it. And I have to deal with it too along with them. Mm-hmm. Um, a- as we know, students really respond to Augustine uh, and the whole issue of ordering our desires. Um, and Augustine comes to the end of his rope and he can't make any sense of it. And he's hit over the head with a strange verse in Romans, you know, not in um, dissipation and so on, but uh, delight, essentially delight yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does that convert him? It's because it satisfies his desires. And I think students, students realize uh, how disordered uh, our, our desires are as we go through humanity. So uh, Augustine, Tocqueville, <clears throat> um, I've had students really respond to the brothers Karamazov uh, as well. Um, we had great uh, uh, debates this spring on um, Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, and then the readings of Frederick Douglass. Um, so it, to, to me, again, the answer is what do students respond to the most? Because I love all of them. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, have there been books in the program that you have found profoundly moving, but have sort of surprised you that they didn't hit as well with the students that for whatever reason? Well, well, my specialty is Edmund Burke, and I, I think Burke is a learned uh, taste. I, the first time I read Burke, uh, I didn't have a teacher, and I didn't like it very much. Um, so it, I think it takes more teaching to uh, make uh, Burke uh, real. I had more success this, this semester than I have in the past. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was the students just trying to be nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I think, I think it worked more. Um, so that, that would be, that would be one, uh, that's, that's always a challenge, I think, Mm -hmm. but the Burke Payne debates, as one of our colleagues said, uh, she feels like she's living through the Burke Payne debates in the city of Minneapolis this, this year, you know, rights on the one hand and you're upending traditions. And on the other hand, and that's a very, very simplified way of putting it, but it's, it's legitimate. Mm-hmm. Yes. You will be happy to know that last night in my Islamic philosophy class, we were talking about the 
transmission of all of these Islamic ideas into the Latin, into the Latin world and the response in terms of Christians. And they also responded in this. Some were rejoicing, let's burn down the institutions we have and do this new learning. Others saying, no, let's be overly cautious. And a whole bunch of my students are humanities students. And they said, oh, it's like Burke and Payne. So, <laughs> That's terrific. It sticks. You know, one thing that I think is is difficult for us in, in humanities is figuring out where, where more poetry would go. Uh, Anne-Marie, we tried to do a little bit more with Emily Dickinson and Phyllis Wheatley's name came up and so on. That's, that's really tough, but you can't do everything in these programs. <clears throat> we haven't mentioned music and art, uh, but those are really important. And, and we do have students uh, from time to time who've really gotten inspired by Wayne Rose's lectures and, and gone on to um, take courses in art history, which, which makes me very happy. We also have a high percentage of students who are musicians. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just love seeing them when they're playing on stage or, um, or acting as well. Yeah, that's, that was fun for me to watch your um, students perform Henry IV over interim and that obviously also is something that certainly resonates with students um, well past uh, January. Again, brilliant idea, brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. Dan, as you look forward to Humanities Four, it's your last semester teaching in the Humanities program. Is there a particular topic or book that you are particularly looking forward to teaching in the fall? And I know you love them all. Yeah, well, um uh, to me, uh, reading reading Nietzsche is really important. Uh, I think Nietzsche is really the foundation for for postmodern thought. Uh, the, the especially the notion of power and individual assertions of power. Um, it's certainly not my favorite. I think if there was one book that shook my faith at uh, or one author, it would be Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very important for students to see to see that um and then um the re the response of of christians uh whether it's flannery o'connor not a response to nietzsche but mm -hmm. responses to the modern world and bonhoeffer okay. um but uh the big novel that we have students do is 1984 mm -hmm. and given the prevalence of uh, surveillance today, uh, cancel culture, making people non-persons, um, changing the news from one from the print edition to the digital edition. I'm always mm -hmm. amused when the New York Times changes things <laughs> <laughs> overnight, uh, or uh, or on the right Fox News. Uh, 1984 is uh, is I, I'm really looking forward to teaching that. And that's what they'll start with from the out of the gate, right? And on the first day of humanities. Well, they're supposed to read it before the first day, uh, mm -hmm. the first lecture. Mm -hmm. uh, they're supposed to read it, um, but we we won't actually get to it until chronologically it's time to get to it. Well, my students in in the, my section seem very excited when they got 1984 in their hands, complete with study guide, by the way. So it, it's great beach reading. That's right. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. 
Um, Dan, uh, one of the things we always also ask our guests is um, what is on your nightstand? So I want to make sure we know what you're reading for fun. Um, for fun. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm reading, uh, I'm reading David Blight's biography of Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in a book group where we're going to talk about that in a couple of uh, nights. And I, I really admire uh, Douglas more and more uh, as I'm going through this. He's a complicated person, but I love the fact that he has one speech in the 1840s where he says the Constitution is a pro-slavery document. And then in the 1850s, he's talked to an abolitionist named Garrett Smith, and he has another speech that says the Constitution is an anti-slavery document. And so just just putting together those two, speaking of uh, uh, resistance, those those two uh, different readings of the Constitution has been great. So David Blight. um, And then I'm also reading um, a novel called uh, The Clear Light of Day by Anita Desai. Uh, it's it's a it, she's an Indian uh, author and it's set in 1947-48. So it's the time of the partition mm. between India and Pakistan. Yeah. Um, but Alan Jacobs uh, suggested this book and his his book Breaking Bread with the Dead, and uh, it's just a very different for me kind of experience of looking at um, this situation in India, especially from the perspective of two of the daughters, mm. uh, and their very different approaches to life. They, end, they, one of the characters ends up reading, they're Hindus, but one of the characters ends up reading about a Muslim, uh, emperor Aurangzeb, uh, and identifying somehow with him. So here's another example of someone from one religion, Hinduism, realizing she has to pay attention to someone from a totally different culture, this Islamic mm-hmm. uh, emperor, um, which, which is so close to what we do in humanities, paying attention to people who are different in time, although not always necessarily in race, but mm-hmm. clear light yeah. of day. And we don't, I don't, we don't usually ask this, but because the summer is approaching, is there something that you haven't started reading yet, but you have sort of on your future nightstand, so to speak. There's like, oh, I'm definitely reading this this summer. Um, haven't thought too much about this, but uh, there's a book, I think it's called Empire of the Rising Sun or Empire of the, uh, it, it's about the um, Comanche Empire mm. in the um, Western Plains. And it's a story of a uh, um, a family, a white family that got too far beyond the settlements in Texas, and uh, many of them were killed, but the son was captured, and he rose to become a Comanche chief <laughs> and was very feared. And it's a story about tremendous horsemanship and, and it, well, frankly, very brutal warfare and torture, uh, but um, uh, a good um History. This is a nonfiction book about the Comanches. Oh, Empire of the Rising Sun or Setting Sun or something like that. Interesting indeed. Carrie, um, what's on your nightstand? So I am now post Ulysses, continuing to just keep it light and work my way back through some Sam Vimes uh, novels in the Terry Pratchett Discworld series. So I've just started Feet of Clay. Um, which is sort of written as a a kind of a mystery novel about how people in this particular city keep dying. So it's 
satire fantasy mystery novel. It's very, very good. Less, less intense than uh, Ulysses. But my book that I hope to read over the summer um, is Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, because Daniel will be shocked to hear this, but I didn't realize that Ulysses was a follow-up to <laughs> Portrait of the Artist. So I've never read that. <laughs> I want to add one kind of devotional book. Uh, my wife uh, loves, loves a book on prayer. It's just called Prayer by O. Hallesby. H-A-L-L-E-S-B-Y, I think is the spelling. Classic book on prayer. And I would commend that to your listeners. He, he was the first president of the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, the kind of international intervarsity group. Prayer by O. Hallesby. Well, and I am reading, I have two books on my nightstand currently. One is I'm still reading this book, Forged in Crisis by Nancy Kane. I finished her section on Shackelford, the guy who um, led a trek to Antarctica, but had to abandon that and get his men back home safely. That was fascinating, that portion. And now I'm reading about Abraham Lincoln. And one of the things she mentions, and this came up uh, with regard to Frederick Douglass, is she really appreciates that his position politically on slavery does evolve over time. And she actually thinks this is an attribute of a great leader, is someone who is thinking about an issue and is able, in fact, to evolve in his or her approach. So um, Lincoln is maybe um, more interesting than he's ever been for me in Forged in Crisis. And I'm very excited about this because this goes with our sort of summer reading theme. I still need to finish James Joyce, Ulysses, but I thought I need to go back and actually read a good version of the Odyssey itself. And so I did actually pick up from Barnes and Noble, the um, Odyssey translated by Emily Wilson. And it is a beautiful translation of Homer's book and I think I will be very happy for some nights to come reading through uh, that translation. So that's what's on my nightstand. I don't know what I'm going to read over the summer, except for a lot of James Joyce, apparently, and maybe some Milton, <laughs> which seems ambitious. That is an ambitious summer plan. But um, I just want to make sure as we're coming to the end of this podcast to um, obviously thank Dan Ritchie for being with us here today. But I also want to thank Jenna Christensen, uh, who's been a wonderful humanities teaching assistant, mm -hmm. and she is the person who has been posting to our blog kind of a synopsis of what we've talked about on the podcast. And so she's been a, a great listener. And obviously, I also want to thank Sam Mulberry for not only being a fantastic guest from time to time, but also being our producer and a cheerleader in general. So thanks to all of those folks, and obviously to my co-host, Carrie Peffley, for being a great co-host. And I right guess, yeah, well, there you go. So um, <laughs> this is our last podcast of the school year. And so uh, again, for those of you listening, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.